This episode of The Way Home Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company. One of my favorite theologians and authors, Sinclair Ferguson, has come out with a wonderful new devotional from our friends at The Good Book Company called Love Came Down at Christmas. You know, everyone seems to say that Christmas is about love. Right? It's in the songs we hear as we shop for presents, in the advertisements we see on TV. And Christians do agree Christmas is about love because love came down at Christmas in the person of, that is, love incarnate, Jesus Christ. So I'm encouraging you this Advent season, join Sinclair Ferguson with daily devotional readings from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we see what love looked like in the life of Christ and how we can love like him. So go to thegoodbook.com slash love. That's thegoodbook.com slash love. And use the code ERLC30 and get 30% off of this wonderful Advent devotional. What do you do and what steps do you take when you have a friend or loved one who is suffering through addiction. These are things, questions that perhaps you face, or as a pastor or church leader, you've had someone come to you and say, uh, how do I help my friend? How do I help my family member? Or perhaps they've come and admitted to you that they themselves suffer from serious addiction. Well, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Johnny Baker, who is pastor of Celebrate Recovery at Saddleback Church in California. Johnny's story is unique. His dad founded Celebrate Recovery, but Johnny himself struggled through addiction and was in need of of help uh, and recovery. Uh, He has a very interesting story about addictions, about God's grace, and really how the church can meet people who suffer this way uh, and help them find hope and healing. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Johnny Baker. Johnny, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to be here. So, Johnny, you have been a pretty uh, well-known leader in addiction and recovery ministry, uh, particularly with Celebrate Recovery, and uh, have your own story to tell. I guess I first want to talk to you uh, about sort of your own story into this ministry and go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, my parents started Celebrate Recovery back in 1991 out of uh, a need for my for my dad uh, specifically. He and my mom were separated for about 13 months after they got into an argument over getting a piece of pie with some friends, and she said, "You know, either get help or or get out." And he left. And it was during that 13 months that he began his recovery journey, and mm. uh, through traditional means, and um, he realized in that that he needed a program that had a higher power who was Jesus because he was raised in a Christian home. And as they were beginning to reconcile, he asked if he could come to church with us one one day, which was sort of uh, brand new for him. We'd quit asking him for, for so long. And he came to Saddleback and heard Pastor Rick speak and uh, had that experience that a lot of people had where it felt like he was talking right to him. And so he did the next uh, rational thing. He sat down with my mom, and together they wrote a 13-page single-space letter uh, to Pastor Rick outlining the vision for what would become Celebrate Recovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was about 14 or 15 at the time, and 
uh, they were convinced that Pastor Rick would find the right man to run the ministry. And about a week later, he found himself in Pastor Rick's office. And Rick said, great, John, do it. And so that's how Celebrate Recovery was begun. And being a teenager at the time, I was invited uh, or forced to come along every Friday night to help set up and take down and be a, a member of the teens group. And it was there that I had uh, my first experience with going through recovery for, at the time, just a, a um, child of an alcoholic. Mm. And uh, mm. fast forward a number of years and kind of walking away from the church and walking away from recovery. And I went out to do uh, kind of my own thing. And uh, in December of 1999, I was arrested for a DUI. Mm-hmm. Um, where I had to call my dad, who's also the founder of Celebrate Recovery from jail, to come pick me up. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I could say that was the moment that I turned everything around, but it wasn't. It took me a, a few more years. Uh, it wasn't until my wife got pregnant with our first daughter that I thought, you know, I really don't want to bring this into my parenting. I don't want my kids to be around it the way that, that I was. And so um, that's when I began seeking out recovery for myself and, uh, and went right back to Celebrate Recovery because I knew where to go. Mm. Explain what that's like. You know, I mean, it's it's it seems like it's similar to those of us who grew up in the church, where you know, when someone who's a pastor's child or something walks away from the church, it's almost an, another level of kind of shame and regret whenever you sort of get in trouble or come to the end of yourself. But I imagine, yeah. you know, for for a child of of someone who grew up in a re- kind of recovery environment and uh, son of the founder of celebrate recovery. You know, what, what was that like? You know, I really thought I was fooling everybody for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was sort of the, the thing. I didn't think anybody knew about it. And actually one of the, the hardest things to deal with was when I began uh, recovery and people would say, oh yeah, we, we saw you or we heard about you and, and realized that that, that's, that stuff got back to my parents. And uh, the idea, not just of the DUI night, but of many nights of them getting phone calls or text messages or just, hey, saw Johnny out being wild, um, that was really hard for me mm-hmm. to overcome. And, and to this day, it's still one of the, a great source of shame for me that I'm not proud of, you know? Mm. Um, and it could have been something that would have kept me away from Celebrate Recovery, but mm. I needed to change so badly that I kind of had to just swallow mm. that and, and attend anyway. And um, I'm really glad that I did. And let me ask you this. Is there a, a different path to recovery for somebody who kind of knows all the right answers and grows up in the church. And in a sense, you know, I I grew up in the church as well, kind of knows how to fool people Mm -hmm. and sort of has all those layers on top. Is there kind of a different pathway to recovery? Well, I think what it is, is that you have to get to the point where you realize that you're not God, which is the first step Mm -hmm. of recovery, and that things are out of control in your life. And so much of the recovery journey starts there. And so for somebody raised in the church, um, like you said, they know the Bible verses, they know the answers, they know to read their Bible and pray. And I think what happens a lot of times is people will go, okay, I'm going to grit this out. Me and God are going to beat this together. And they don't seek out the help that they need, or they may have even been turned away from seeking the help because people might say, well, it just means your faith isn't strong enough. And unfortunately, that happens so often. And so what we have learned through recovery is that, you know, your faith, you know, Jesus said your faith doesn't have to be huge. It has to be the size of a mustard seed to move mountains in your life. And that mountain may be addiction. It may be compulsive eating. It may be looking at inappropriate images online. It might be relationships or, you know, judging people or, or, or overcoming pain from your past. I, I don't know. But when we're told, well, your faith is just not big enough. So read your Bible and pray more, which, by the way, those are great things to do. Mm-hmm. But 
we often need a step-by-step systematic approach that helps us learn new habits and helps us with accountability because the Bible also says to pray for each other and confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed, which means we need other people around us. So when we put those two things together, we find a lot of healing and a lot of freedom in our lives. And we try to go it alone, which is what I think happens for a lot of people raised in the church. I'm just going to knuckle down. I'm gonna, we call it white knuckling. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to journal. I'm going to read my Bible 12 hours a day. I'm going to mm-hmm. pray the other 12 hours. And then the first day that you don't, it kind of starts to slip. And now, oh man, I'm just a loser. And, and it can really spiral out of control. And so I do think that there are a lot of different ways to approach beginning recovery, but it all, it all boils down with the idea that I need it. Mm. You know, one of the frustrations for me as a pastor, and I've talked with other pastors about this, is um, sometimes it's hard to get people to to just go get help or to go to celebrate recovery or to go get counseling. And often it's Christian people that are embarrassed by having to do that or feel like they have to sort of admit something is not right. I don't, I don't know if you've had your in your experience, you've had that too, but it can be really frustrating to say like, we really want to see you get help. You're crying out. Please do this. Um, Is that an experience that you often have in in helping people? Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, as a pastor, it's, it often starts with, with you or, or if there's pastors listening Mm -hmm. to this to making it okay for the people in your congregation to seek help, you know, where during sermons and during messages and during counseling, you say, listen, Admitting you have a problem doesn't mean that you're weak. You know, it, it means that you're you're saying things are broken, and I need to get help from this. And and it's only then that we can actually mm-hmm. even find the freedom we're looking for. And I mean, think about so many people when they come to Christ originally, they come to Christ because something is wrong in their life, and they're saying, "I want something better than this." Whether it was a uh, you know. Uh, a, a situation of crying out to God saying, save me from this, or whether it was just something going, man, I, I don't want to live a, a meaningless life that's going to end you know, <laughs> tragically. I want, I want hope and freedom in the whole thing that you offer. Well, it's just going back to that kind of thing, saying, man, if your marriage is in trouble, please seek marital counseling. Mm-hmm. You know, My wife and I, in different seasons of our marriage, have gone through marital counseling, and we always come out stronger. Even if the counseling isn't the best experience in the world, the conversations on the way to and from always help us in our marriage. I personally have gone through counseling uh, on an individual basis, mm-hmm. and the same thing. Uh, and then with recovery, I'm obviously you know very supportive of support groups and recovery groups and things like that. So often you just have to help that person see that we all need it. And I think that's what's so important about Celebrate Recovery is we're not just for drug addicts and alcoholics. In fact, only a third of the people who come to CR struggle with those issues. Everybody else comes from a wide variety of backgrounds and different hurts, hangups, and habits. And so tell, telling somebody, you know, hey, this is for you. And then here's another thing for pastors, if, if this is something you can do. If you can share your own experiences of mm-hmm. counseling or maybe even recovery, we have a group called Celebrating Pastors Recovery or CPR that's designed mm-hmm. for pastors to go through recovery because we realize that maybe going through recovery group in your home church may not be the safest thing for everybody involved, but we would love for you to find some freedom from your own pain because mm-hmm. um, we know, unfortunately, that once we get that name pastor in front or that title pastor in front of us, all our pain doesn't just magically disappear, yeah. does it? Well, and, so. it, and it does seem that is a, a big obstacle. Like, you know, if you have a, a career and you have a family and you have a sort of reputation and even just to go get counseling or go and get help, it seems like it, it kind of punctures this sort of safe veneer that everything's okay. And 
kind of a hard thing for people to do. Yeah, we talk about it a lot, and I talk about in the Road to Freedom that there's this idea of like normal people, and then those people, mm-hmm. and those people. We've kind of taken that name on. Mm-hmm. Those of us in recovery, it used to be sort of like a slam, like oh, those people who need recovery, or those poor people who are you know too weak to get along without a counselor and things like that. We've kind of re- taken that word on and said, no, we're those people who are brave enough to admit we don't have it all together. You know, the normal people in the world, we. It's so, I don't know if it's cultural. I don't know if it's a, a specific thing in time or whatever it is, but it's the, the greatest sin many of us com, can commit is letting people know that we're not perfect, that we mm-hmm. don't have it all together. And we work so hard to keep up this facade that we have it all together, but we don't. So many of us are hurting and broken and going through pain in our lives that the reality mm-hmm. is this week, if we could all just say, listen, we all have it. We've all got issues. We've all, you know, we're all blown it in some way or another. Let's be gentle with each other and gracious with each other. Man, I think it would be so much easier. But, mm. you know, the things that you're talking about are all these things that can be this internal monologue that somebody could be using to say, oh, yeah, I can't, I can't because I'm this or I can't because I'm that. I've got to hold it together and not go to CR or not go to counseling or not seek help because I'm a prominent businessman in my community or I'm a, a deacon at our church or, or I'm a, a, a mom who you know, uh, everybody thinks has it all together, but until those things all slip away and really what happens is the pain in our lives exceeds all those excuses and exceeds all that fear, then we can turn to God and turn to, to Christ through recovery or counseling and really find healing. When you were going through your own journey, you know, having, you know, here you are the son of a, the Celebrate Recovery founder and you're arrested uh, and it's embarrassing what was it? Was there one or two conversations? Was there was there a verse? Was there a a class? Like what was the turning point for you that really helped you overcome the addictions, you know, especially after a kind of an embarrassing failure like that? Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I wish it was something as spiritual that I honestly I was uh sitting in my bathroom. Uh, opening beer while the shower was running to hide the sound of the cans cracking mm. and to celebrate that my wife and I had gotten pregnant. Mm. And uh, although I never got, I didn't get a second DUI because I decided that driving was the problem, not drinking. Mm. So if I had a, a drink, I never got behind the wheel of the car again. Um, and so I was sitting there beginning to drink my congratulatory beer when I thought, you know, even though we just got the news that Jenny's pregnant, if she were to go into labor right now after I had this beer, I wouldn't be able to be the one to drive her to the hospital. We'd have to call her mom or my parents, and and then my facade would be up because I was hiding it even from her. And I went, this is not okay. This isn't normal behavior. And so I went into what a lot of people did. I, I you know, I, I poured all those out, and I went through the house, and I poured out all my hidden beers and my hidden booze that I had stashed all over the house. And I went in through this 30 day, like I talked about earlier, white knuckling thing, mm-hmm. but I fantasized about drinking every moment and mm-hmm. I wanted to drink so bad. And it was actually a friend who wasn't a part of Celebrate Recovery at all who said, Johnny, you know where to go. What are you doing? You're, you're, you're fighting this so hard, but you're doing it alone and you know, that's not the way to do it. And so I called up my dad. I said, Hey, I'm, I'm coming to CR this Friday night. And, uh, you know, walking through those doors the first time, again and walking through those doors the first time as somebody who was going to be admitting he was an alcoholic was was pretty rough but i found so much love and i found so much acceptance and i found so many people who are just willing to say we're glad you're here we don't care what your name is we're just glad you're here uh, now that changed as i stepped into leadership later on but at the beginning 
it was really warm and welcoming and I was really excited about it. So it was very helpful. Mm. I'm curious how you deal with, it, it seems to me like sometimes in, in Christian environments, we're well-meaning, but we talk about victory in such a way that I wonder if it hurts people who have ongoing struggles. So for instance, you know, you're in church and someone stands up and you're in your small group or in testimony time or even maybe in CR and say, man, I, you know, was addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs or whatever, and I became a Christian and <laughs> God took this away and I had this great victory. And I always wonder about the two or three people sitting in the audience who are Christians and are being faithful, but yeah, it's a struggle. Like every day they don't want to do what they need to do and they don't do what they should, you know, and yeah, yeah. they're struggling. How, how do you, how do you feel about that? So I say, praise God if somebody's, you know, uh, experiences that they prayed and God took the compulsion to drink away. I think that's amazing. Wasn't how it happened for me. Isn't how it happens for most people, but I do know that it happens. Um, but my challenge to them is always to look behind them and see the wake of destruction in their past mm-hmm. or in their path, because their drinking hurt other people, not just themselves, mm-hmm. their, or their whatever, whatever their addiction was. It hurt other people around them, and they have children or spouses or friends or family members who watch them struggle, and now they stand up and say, hey, I'm different, I'm better, let's not talk about that ever again. Well, those people are still hurting from that. They're, they're thankful that you don't drink anymore, but they could still benefit from their own recovery program and from that person going through a recovery program to learn things like how to apologize and how to forgive and what caused them to do that in the first place. And it's why in Celebrate Recovery, I, you know, I've been sober for over 15 years, but I don't say I'm freed, I, I have experienced freedom from alcoholism or I'm no longer, I say I'm a believer. So when I identify myself, I say, my name is Johnny. I'm a believer. I struggle with alcoholism and codependency. Well, why do I say I struggle with? I struggle with it because the minute I think I don't means I can start drinking again because I've beaten this. So why not have a beer after Mm. work? Why not have a drink with friends every once in a while? Well, why not is because while I know that people like this exist, they can have one drink and not not keep going until they're out of drinks. I'm just not one of them. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I know I know what happens when I start down that path. So mm-hmm. for me, I remind myself, I struggle with this because I know the way that my mind works. And although I have not thought about drinking for years, I haven't been tempted to have a drink in a very, very, very long time. I know the minute I think I can handle it is the minute I begin to slip down that path again. And I don't want to relapse. I don't want to go back to that old life. I love this life so much more and I talk about this a lot. People say, do you ever miss the good old days? I'm like, no, these are the good old days. This is the best time that I've ever had. So why go back to that old life? Mm. Talk to me about how you would counsel pastors, church leaders, even just family friends. Uh, if you have someone in your life that you really love and really care about, and you see them making choices that are just not wise or kind of stuck in a in a rut, it could be addiction, it could be a unhealthy marriage, it could be a variety of things, or maybe all those are sort of marbled in together as as they mostly are, who you're just trying to get them to go get help, you know, go to a celebrate recovery, go get counseling. How would you counsel uh, someone who's frustrated in that way that can't get someone they love to to go do what they need to do? Yeah, well, I'd start with how my dad started with me when he picked me up from jail that night. Um, he We got to the car and he said, kid, I'm not going to lecture you not going to yell at you. I'm just going to tell you, I think you've got a problem and you need to take some some action and look at it. But he left the decision up to me. 
And uh, although I didn't immediately turn to CR and counseling and all those things, I never forgot those words. Mm. And it, it also gave me the ability to when I was ready, because that's a key part, when I was ready, I didn't feel like I was going to have to go get a lecture or a talking to or anything from him, that he was just going to welcome me in when I was ready to go back. The, the, the second thing is, no one will change until they are ready to change. And so as a pastor, as a spouse, as a sibling, as a, a child, there's nothing you can say or do that'll make that person change unless they are ready to change. Now, that doesn't mean don't ask them to come. That doesn't mean don't give them pamphlets about what time things meet. It doesn't mean don't tell them that they need it. It doesn't mean don't set boundaries, especially in a marriage, to say, you know, hey, if this continues, this is what's going to happen. I think all of those are good things. But what I'm trying to say is, if you're the person who's getting frustrated, give yourself the grace of knowing there's not, there is no magic word. There is no right way that gets this person to do what they, what I, what they need to do until they are ready to do it. But the one thing we can stop doing for those people is enabling them and making the cushion too soft when they fall. Because if that happens, then there is no pain. And without pain, there's no change. And so it's the hardest thing to do, especially for us, for a child to say, I'm going to take away that cushion. I'm going to take away that soft landing and let you fall pretty hard if you get hurt. Uh, but that pain is what's going to help them turn their life around. Because again, mm nobody changes until the fear of change is exceeded by the pain in their life. Mm -hmm. What is one of the biggest myths or maybe one of the two or three biggest myths about people who struggle with addiction? Well, what I think is that they're weak. Um, I, I think that, you know, we all struggle with different things. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, it's easy to point to the alcoholic and say, oh, well, you know, that person's obviously a weak moral character or something like that. And the reality is, is that they, they're struggling with, uh, with something in their life, just like everybody is. I think um, another one is that the alcohol is the actual problem. It is a problem, but is a it is a symptom of a greater condition. Uh, and so until we deal with that condition uh, inside, whether that's abandonment as a child or it's low self-esteem or it's not, you know, or it's some kind of uh, pain from an abusive situation in the past, I may be able to switch from drinking to eating ice cream, but I'm still covering up that, mm -hmm. that, that hurt in one way or another. And so we have to dig deep to that, um, to that core issue. I guess the last one I would say is that there is a type. Um, in the you know, 14 years I've been on staff at Saddleback and the time I've traveled around you know, the country teaching about Celebrate Recovery, you see all kinds of people who uh, identify as people who struggle with addiction. Uh, there's no type. It doesn't, addiction doesn't care about gender. It doesn't care about race. It doesn't care about socioeconomic, you know, levels. It, it, addiction is a, is a terrible thing that um, is spreading with things like the opioid epidemic and uh, online pornography rates going up so high uh, that addiction is just, it's something that we're all, we're going to be mm. battling for a long time. What are some things that you've seen that are different in terms of a uh, the sort of types of addictions we're facing now versus when Celebrate Recovery first started? Yeah. Number one. Number two, what are some of the ways that CR and you yourself have maybe even changed your approach? What have you learned, you know, the 
from the first few years of, of doing this kind of ministry uh, to the present? Yeah, what we're finding is that there that um, things uh, addictions are still growing. There's so there's an opioid epidemic now that kills 140 people every day. Mm. Um, and most of those people are not using heroin. They're using prescribed medicine, whether they're obtaining it illegally or not, but it is uh, prescribed medicine. It's just, it's sweeping through. It's it's a brain, I mean, it's in the last few years, it's gone from nothing to this huge epidemic. We're seeing the online, online pornography usage soaring. There was a recent study that said, 68% of Christian men admit to regularly using uh, pornography, which is uh, because of the internet and the free accessibility to it. It's uh, just getting worse and worse and worse and younger and younger and younger. Um, and so those are a couple of the things that we're seeing. And then uh, as far as how we've changed our approach, uh, you know, the, the steps and the principles have been around for a long time. Uh, you know, group-based recovery has been around for a long time. I think one thing that we're learning is that it may be easier to have rules for people when they come to recovery. This is what's going to happen. This is how this goes. But it's it's not as as loving and it's not as grace-filled as being able to say, you know what, we're going to have conversations about all of this and we're going to come up with the right thing based on an individual basis. So particularly when somebody relapses, it's really tempting to just say, this is how we do this. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's really important to say, no, I'm going to talk to this person and really walk through this with them because ministry is messy. Uh, mm. And so having having something really clean and, and laid out isn't always going to be the right way to go. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, one of the things I've discovered as a pastor is just the messiness of ministry. It seems like there's, <laughs> you know, there's this impulse that we want to fix people. And my my theory is, and I'm curious what you think about it, is that you know, this impulse to want to fix people is a good impulse in the sense that we long for redemption, right? We long for right. the day when Christ will make all things new. But sometimes it seems like we we think that all that work is going to be done on this side of heaven. And then <laughs> you get into ministry and realize that in a fallen world, you know, sin and addiction and guilt and someone's past and all these things are sort of layered in. And there's some things that are so thorny and naughty that they won't be completely unraveled until Jesus comes, right? Right, right. And so yeah. it, does that kind of change the way we approach people, you think? If, yeah, I think so. That? I think so. Like we have one of our guidelines, we have five guidelines in our groups that keep our group safe. And one of them is that we're here to support one another, not fix one another. Mm. Uh, which means we don't offer advice in our groups. We don't quote scripture at each other. We don't tell people what books to read. When I go to my group at CR on Friday night, I can share for three to five minutes and nobody's allowed to say I'm right, wrong, or indifferent. I just get to speak my mind. And there's such power in that. And then uh, as somebody who like you is also a fixer, I don't get to sit there and say, oh, well, here, here's how to get better with that. Because I can, I'm great at giving advice. I'm not so good at following advice, but I'm great at giving advice. And uh, you're right. There are some things that are just going to be a struggle for people for a really long time. And it's why in Celebrate Recovery, we are so focused on being a Christ-centered recovery program. And I often say that if somebody comes to Celebrate Recovery and they get sober, but they miss Jesus, we have failed. The whole point we want to do is we want to point people to a relationship with the higher power, the Lord and Savior of everyone who's gonna who mm -hmm. can give us freedom. 
from everything, but without whom we might find a little bit of growth. We might find some victory. We might even get sober, but so what? At the end of life, we don't get to go to heaven and be with him where you're talking about. We're going to have all the freedom and all the change in our life. So for me, yeah, I I agree with you 100% that sometimes we have to have a long view of ministry and say, I'm planting seeds, right? Somebody else water it, but who's the one that makes it grow? That's all God's power. And so just saying like, you know, it's not going to be easy. And if your ministry is too clean, I think you're doing something wrong. Get in there and mix it up with people and be where they are, where they're hurting, because there is such a joy in watching people's lives change that excuses the term, but it's kind of addicting. <laughs> you know, you just kind of want to be around it more and more and more. Mm-hmm. That's that's really good. If you're talking to pastors and church leaders out there mm-hmm. who are saying, you know, we really want to s- start serving people in our community who are falling prey to addictions, whether it's the opioid crisis or it's uh, alcohol or drugs. We want to get started, but we we're just like we don't know how what our first steps should be. What what advice would you would you give them? Yeah, I think it's great. I think the first thing I would do is go to our website, celebratecovery.com. There's a couple of things I would encourage you to do. The first one is there's a, a button on there called Find Your State Rep. There's about 300 men and women volunteers all over the country who want to help you get started, who want to, and they're, they're going to come to your church for free. They're not going to charge you anything. And if anybody ever comes to you and says, hey, for this amount of money, I'll help you start Celebrate Recovery, they're not a part of us. Our state reps will come. They'll visit you. They'll, they'll help you find a Celebrate Recovery. Uh, or find a way to start a Celebrate Recovery. The second thing I do is find a Celebrate Recovery in your area and visit it. Go to it, check it out, see what it's all about. And the third thing is come to one of our training events. We have uh, three-day summits that we have one in July and one in August, uh, an East Coast and a West Coast. And then we have one-day training conferences where we come to churches all over the country. We do about 15 to 18 of them a year. Come to one of those and, and hear about how to start a Celebrate Recovery uh, in your church. And know too, pastor, it starts with you. It starts with you saying, not only are you you know, welcome here, but you're wanted here. We want to have a group for people who are struggling, no matter what their hurt, hang up, or habit is. Yes, for drug addicts and alcoholics, but also for the, the woman who doesn't want to get out of the bed in the morning because she's so depressed or because you know, you're hurting over a past abuse or a current problem in your marriage, or you've got people-pleasing issues and you don't know how to work that out. It starts with you saying, we want you here in our church. We want to give you the answer here in our church because the answer's name is Jesus, and he's going to help you find freedom over all kinds of hurts, hangups, and habits. Mm. And uh, how can people specifically learn more about about you, Johnny? Can you tell them how to follow you? And if they want to read uh, some of the things you've written, uh, what would you say? Yeah, sure. I've got a brand new book out called The Road to Freedom that you can purchase at Lifeway or Amazon.com or a bunch of different places like that. And it's a 10 life lessons I've learned uh, through my time in Celebrate Recovery uh, that apply to, to not just recovery, but other things as well. And then I'm at all the normal places. I'm on Twitter at Johnny Baker CR and Instagram at Johnny Baker. And then we have a Celebrate Recovery Facebook page where every Friday night we do a live Q&A video uh, and they can check that out with us as well. And that's the Celebrate Recovery Facebook page. Thank you so much, Johnny. I appreciate uh, you joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. 
The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.